0: Is a woman, part two, and uh, only the women get two sessions, compared to the man, to the men who get one. But uh, next week we're going to keep the uh, theme of uh, our talk, which uh, we're we keep keeping in in the same slot. What a, what is a uh, uh, boy to man? is the, the, the title of the message, so we'll keep that in the same slot. So it would be good, a good time next week to bring the, the, young, you know, the young men uh, to the session. It would be good and helpful for them, I think. So last week we talked about the identity of a woman, according to God, uh, the physical, the functional, and also the ethical. And then we talked about the forming stage and how God built woman from the side of man and, uh, and brought her into the garden, placed her there in the filling stage. Uh, so we talked also about the theft of her identity and how that theft transpired through the devil and the flesh and also through the world. So uh, tonight we're going to deal with the church's response, and also the restoration of her identity. And uh, we'll close with that. So, tonight I'm gonna say perhaps some hard things. um, Some things that you may not have heard necessarily before, but I think it's important that we, as we're dealing with this issue, that we, we talk about some of these things. And for those that know me well, you know that I'm deeply troubled by what other people think, <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's important. We're going to lay this out, and I want to be, I want to be gentle with this, and um, you know, I hope, I hope uh, and trust that the Lord will uh, give us grace here. So as believers, as the church, how are we supposed to respond to this? How, what are we supposed to do? What can we do? How can we honor God's glorious plan for women? And first it begins by recognizing that there is no sphere that's left untouched by God. No sphere left untouched. What do I mean by that? Well, there are three protective spheres that God has designed in order for the word of God to flourish in a society. They are the church, they are the family, and they are the culture or the civil sphere. Those are the three spheres. They're often called the sphere of sovereignty. And so, as we have seen, God has made women unique. And her uniqueness is tied to her creational design. How God built her, ordered her, and endowed her with an identity. And this identity is to be lived out practically in all three spheres of society. The church, the family, and the civil. She's not only, well, let's put it this way. Are you a woman all day? When you go to the store, are you a woman? Or are you only a woman at church and in the family? So we've seen that the failing to honor women physically and emotionally in her strengths and in her limitations leads to the dishonoring of women in society, a society that recognizes God's plan for women will flourish but a society that fails to properly recognize gender roles dishonors women and leads her into pain, suffering, confusion, isolation, and all three pillars of society are weakened as a result. So cementing God's creational identity for women should not be just assumed in the church, but it should be taught. It should be part of the church's ministry. Arresting as it is, we must face the fact that we are here today in large part because of the failure of the visible church to hold the line on identity. The liberal church influenced first wave feminism back in the mid 19th century and has been slithering its way into mainstream evangelical churches all across the West. This has led the church into a sea of confusion and it silenced church leaders who are timid about declaring gender, gender roles and has rendered the word of God impotent on such matters. So where does the solution lie? Well, first, the, church, the church's leaders, elders, husbands, fathers, must gain a meaningful and serviceable understanding of the male and female binary as it pertains to nature. They must step up as worthy, approved workmen for Christ by acquiring a sturdy theology of the sexes that's rooted on God's infallible word and also his creational identity for a sexed humanity. Christian scholarship and Bible commentaries today are dominated by liberal feminist arguments that both husband and wife should mutually submit to one another They teach that women may assume leadership roles in the church and that the Apostle Paul's teaching of men and women was merely limited to Greco-Roman culture and has been transcended by our unity in Christ. This failure to teach God's cosmological blueprint for women has paralyzed conservative churches and led to what is now called, or what we would call, complementarianism. Complementarian ideas have been popularized by such men as John Piper and Wayne Grudem that teach that men are to lead in the home and the church, but they fail to address the third critical component, the civil sphere. A full treatment of male headship is beyond the scope of our talk tonight. However, it is central to the church's role in the restoration of a woman's feminine identity. In Zachary Garris' book, Masculine Christianity, Garris points out that the complementarian theology that dominates the conservative church today fails to explicitly root male and female roles in the distinct natures of male and female. It is therefore unsurprising that most complementarians today refuse to apply the differing roles of men and women to the civil sphere, and instead they relegate gender roles only to the home and to the church. So Garris doesn't mince words here when he states flatly. He says, quote, Sadly, the modern church has traded the biblical worldview of patriarchy for that of our matriarchal and effeminate culture. The Bible calls for men to rule their households, the church, and society. Men are supposed to protect and provide for their families, which puts their wives in a place of honor. Feminism is rebellion against such God-given authority, and it has resulted in women acting like men and men acting like women. Without godly male rule, we are left with single mothers, fatherless children, promiscuity, cohabitation, abortion, rape, women pastors, political correctness, and a father usurping government that has duped people into thinking it will fix all of our woes. Let us cast aside such foolishness and restore our society to the rule of fathers." End quote. So granted, the scripture does not have as much to say about the civil sphere as it does the family and the church. And those consequently have adopted a complementarian view. They feel they cannot or should not speak on gender roles outside of the home and the church. I'm not suggesting that only a handful of men are to blame. The failure to equip the church with a biblical cosmology is shared universally today by our evangelical churches and has dimmed our light in the world. So let me hit at this from another angle. Consider that the self-authenticating character of general revelation is God's means of instructing without words, right? Psalm 19, Romans 1 and 2, general revelation is God's testimony in the creation and the conscience. We've talked about that in past talks. General revelation points to God's infinite character and natural ordering of the creation. So general revelation is not only inescapable to all men, but it is clear enough to condemn them. According to Romans 1.20. All men are without excuse for their suppression of God's cosmology. John Calvin said of General Revelation, We thus stress Paul's teaching that all men do not have a mere capacity for, but are in actual possession of the knowledge of God. So why am I bringing this up? Because it begs the question. If God holds spiritually dead men accountable to recognize his natural order, Does Christ not expect the church, who has been given the Spirit of God, to acknowledge the differing natures of the sexes and how that would apply, not only in the home and the church, but in every area of life? So, consider this quote from Herman Bavink. He was a 19th century Dutch theologian. He puts a fine point on the differing natures of men and women when he writes, nature teaches this distinction. No science and no philosophy is needed to acquaint oneself with this. Men and women differ in physical structure, physical strength, in psychological nature and psychological strength. Thereby they naturally enjoy different rights and are called to different duties. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, 1818 to 1902, pastored the Presbyterian Church of New Orleans from 1856 till his death in 1902. Almost unheard of today. Right smack in the middle of first-wave feminism and the push for what soon after his death would become the 19th Amendment that granted the women the right to vote. He explicitly ties gender roles to these differing natures, stating, quote, Woman is led to this submission by the instinct of her nature. Man is endowed with attributes that qualify him for his more obtrusive position. He is strong, forceful, massive, fond of adventure, and full of dash and courage. The woman is not equipped for her station by the qualities which distinguish her. She is endowed with grace and beauty to win rather than to subdue. Above all, crowned with that sense of dependence out of which submission springs as an instinct. So, this misfire has led to the overlap in the other two spheres. It is grossly negligible to accept patriarchal headship in two dimensions and then simultaneously accept an egalitarian approach in the civil. These dimensions are a dynamic integration and they're not separate categories. Consequently, we find a weakened family unit and a weakened church that has embraced the spirit of the age and that young women should be sent off like men to pursue careers, hold political office, join the military, and lead in the public square alongside men. Has God determined that the home and the church are unequivocally patriarchal and yet the civil sphere egalitarian? A woman's cosmology given to her by her creator does not lie. A woman's nature cries out who she is, declaring God's creational wisdom and plan. Consider this beautiful insight from Jonathan Edwards on the cosmological dance, if you will, between men and women as it relates to courtship. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, quote, we may illustrate the nature of faith. A little consider what are those affections and motions of heart that are proper and suitable in a spouse towards her bridegroom? What are those conjugal motions of soul which are most agreeable to and do most harmonize with that relationship that she bears as a spouse? Now it is easy to everyone to know that when marriage is according to nature and God's designation when a woman is married to a husband she receives him as a guide, as a protector, a safeguard, a defense, a shelter from harm and dangers, a reliever from distresses, a comforter in affliction, a support in discouragements. God has so designed it and therefore has made man of a more robust nature a strong, strong in mind and body with more wisdom, strength, and courage fit to protect and defend, but he has made women weaker, more soft and tender, more fearful and more affectionate, as a fit object of generous protection and defense. Hence it is that it is natural in women to look most at valor and fortitude, wisdom, generosity, and greatness of soul, These virtues do, or at least ought, according to nature, move most upon the affections of the woman. Hence also it is that men naturally looks most at a soft and tender disposition of mind. And those virtues and affections which spring from it, such as humility, modesty, purity, and chastity, and the affections which he most naturally looks at in her are a sweet and entire confidence and trust. Submission and resignation. For when he receives a woman as a wife, he receives her as an object of his guardianship and protection and therefore looks at those qualifications and dispositions which exert themselves in trust and confidence. Thus, it's against nature for a man to love a woman as a wife that is rugged, daring, presumptuous, trusts to herself and thinks she is able to protect herself and needs none of her husband's defense or guidance. And it is impossible of a woman excuse me and it is impossible a woman should love a man as a husband, except she can confide in him and sweetly rest in him as a safeguard. Unquote. So given the current battering ram against patriarchy, this lack of connecting nature to identity is a fissure that has been easy for the devil to exploit and the church is now paying the price for exposing women to this satanically run culture. Christian fathers are sending their daughters away from their protective covering and into pagan universities to be exposed to raw egalitarianism and liberal feminist ideology. Women are being indoctrinated and brainwashed by liberal universities that teach women to hate men, to become lesbians, and to adopt masculine traits. Mothers in the church are voluntarily sacrificing their children to surrogate daycares in the public schools so that they can enter the workforce, not out of necessity, but in the name of self-actualizing pursuits and the more affluent life that dual income produces. Women are encouraged to join the police force and enlist in the military under combative circumstances and are told that their physical Emotional and mental capacity is no different or poses no threat to others or themselves. All the while, churches have been largely silent. Consequently, many homes today not only have the problem of absentee fathers, but also the problem of absentee mothers. Mothers that have left their calling as helpmates in the rearing and raising of children as they mature and discipling their own daughters to raise children and care also for their own parents. Today, the elderly are common chucked into homes by their children and left to live the rest of their lives to be fed by strangers. These things bring dishonor to God because he has fitted and equipped women for such roles, and we encourage them to reject those roles by our silence. So women become exposed and they become dishonored. Listen to Paul's instructions to Timothy on how to instruct the church at Ephesus regarding a woman's role in the church. And you know this passage well, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, it says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women professing godliness. What kind of works are those, Paul. A woman must learn in quietness and all submission. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why? Why, Paul? Do you just hate women? Are you just another chauvinist like the rest? Well, not quite. Paul says, for it was Adam who was first formed and then Eve. So you mean this is connected to God's plan and design This is connected to how God ordered the universe. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into trespass. So Adam, Paul makes it a point to say that Adam was not deceived, and that Eve was. Could it be that these instructions that Paul is giving has to do with order in the church springing from God's design, but also the honoring of women, the protection of women, to not expose them and to put them in a position where they will be dishonored, vulnerable to attacks from the devil and sitting ducks for his deceptive schemes. Verse 15, but she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. So Paul is saying the same thing that nature teaches us, that a woman's place is in the home. It is to be centered on the family where she is to be protected by her husband insulated in the sovereign little cocoon that is her family unit and protected by the church. She is to raise children, help her children raise children and care for her aging parents. The family is to be central to the woman. It is central in God's plan of redemption. Now, Maybe somebody in this room is uncomfortable hearing about this. Until now, they may be saying, you know what? I never saw it that way before. I never looked at these passages from that standpoint of a woman's nature, from the view of cosmology. So these instructions from Paul, they're not harsh. They are actually honoring first to God his creative plan, and thus they are also honoring women. Now, are we going to agree on every detail about the best way to honor these creational structures practically? No, we're not, and that's okay. There are three cautions we want to keep in mind. First, a woman's nature is not spelled out in every jot and tittle fashioned in the Scriptures. It's not given in precept. We need to be gracious here and to recognize that we are all fallible and we don't have exhaustive understanding on the complexities of our own identity. Second, there isn't a one-size-fits-all here, right? There are distinctions in job situations. There are distinctions in income differences, single fathers and mothers. We have women that are barren. So there's a whole list of distinctions that need to be recognized when we have these discussions. So this is a pattern this is a general pattern. Third, there's also history co- to consider. For example, prior to the Industrial Revolution, fathers primarily worked at home with the family. Children were with their father often. So this idea that a father is to go out to work and mom just stays at home to raise the kids and you know just do all the grunt work and dirty work while the father goes to work, comes back and sits back and watches TV, That is is a stereotypical way of viewing masculinity. Situations are often complex, they're unique, and so we need grace. We need grace in walking these things out. Four, how Christ restores a woman's identity. How does he do it? Well, we know that God's purpose for his creation cannot be thwarted. God has built the purposes for his creation, including womanhood, into the grand story of redemption, and this leads us to the fourth and final point, the restoration of woman's identity. How does God restore a woman? The gospel message of redemption and renewal restores the stolen identity of a woman from counterfeit thieves, but he does it in a most peculiar way. Christ the Conqueror unmasks the three wicked outlaws and not only restores the female identity and calling, but he also greatly expands it. First, from the devil. After Adam and Eve fall into sin, the remainder of the Old Testament story of redemption is rooted in this enmity theme between the woman, her seed, and the serpent. Before the new creational identity can be finally realized with the new heavens and the new earth, God wants us to see How does it, how he does it by highlighting the antithesis, right? What is the ultimate antithesis of the scripture? It is this divine conflict, how God defeats death and the devil. How does he do it? Well, women play a tremendous role. Ironically, in a twist of divine providence, though the devil deceived the woman to accomplish his purposes, God deceives the devil in a demonstration of his superior power and wisdom. God has used women in tremendous ways to accomplish his purposes in bringing about redemption for his people. Run your mind through the progressive revelation of scripture. Think of the Hebrew midwives who deceived Pharaoh and were used by God to avert the destruction of God's people. Think of Jacobed, Moses' mother, who, like the midwives, refused to follow Pharaoh's edict and hid Moses for three months because she recognized that God's plan of redemption included her beautiful offspring. Consider Rahab's deceit to save the Israelite spies in Jericho, or you can recall Esther's cunning to avert genocide and save the jewish people or think of jael who tricked sisera by luring him into her tent and then while he was asleep he drove a tent peg through his skull she did though not the final conquest of the serpent these accounts are harbingers of the promise of genesis 3:15 though the devil bruised the heel of the seed a reference to the crucifixion the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent Though the devil may be the craftiest of all God's created beings, he is no match for the infinite wisdom and power of God. God has used women time and time again to thwart the devil's murderous ways. So it is Christ comes as the fulfillment of the promise made to Eve. He is the promised seed of the woman. He was born by miraculous conception to the woman who nursed our Savior on her breast he went to the cross to boldly face the oldest and most powerful nemesis head on. In our Lord's crucifixion, he lifted the curse of sin and death. On that cross, by his death, he crushes Satan's head while receiving a mortal wound to his heel. In one victorious act on that cross, Christ conquered all three thieves. First, the devil by destroying his plan to stop the seed from bringing about redemption. Second, the flesh by liberating God's offspring through the new birth from the power of sin and the fear of eternal death. Third, the world by protecting his offspring from worldly pleasures, philosophies, lies, schemes, and destructive false gospels. This does not mean Satan won't continue to attempt to thwart God's plan for women. We see his fiery darts thrown in a myriad of ways. Infanticide is in one way. Right? Detach the woman from her protective head. (laughs) Expose her to lies and then go into her holy space before birth. A place of protection and nourishment and destroy the seed within her. And if the devil can't get to the offspring in the womb, then he will attack the womb itself. Consider that legislative bills are being introduced and passed that would offer for sex change operations to confuse children without the knowledge of their parents. And some of those include double mastectomies for prepubescent girls, ensuring that they will never be able to bear children. Well, and if that doesn't work, there are puberty blockers, hormones, birth control pills to cut off the ability to conceive. The devil will sling his arrows at the level of education through wicked doctrines that create gender confusion and identity confusion among the youngest and most vulnerable. Toddlers are being exposed to drag queen story time, events in public libraries. So we live in this already not yet time in redemptive history and Satan is raging because he knows his time is short. So how does Jesus redeem woman from herself, her flesh, and restore her identity? Jesus redeems the woman by revealing the sinfulness of her own heart and by giving her a new identity through the new birth. Though she may still struggle with sin, Christ has broken the controlling power of sin in her life, as we heard this morning. She now has a new master and a new lover of her soul. This does not mean women won't face particular struggles. However, where sin still remains the redeemed woman can have confidence that wherever the challenges may lie, she is freed from the dominion of sin to bring forth spiritual fruit for God. God honors the woman's new creational identity in that he associates women with his chosen people. Israel is depicted as God's precious wife who was so often oppressed by her sin and who suffers the consequence of self-inflicted wounds. Yahweh describes himself as Israel's husband Who is in his condescension, made a covenant with her despite her unfaithfulness. He provides the best wine at her wedding, signifying the new creation has arrived. He seeks her out at Jacob's well, the historic place of Old Testament engagements, to give her pure living water and free her from her sin and oppression. In touching his garment, he heals her bleeding and unclean body as the only one fit to cleanse her of her stains he frees her from demonic oppression and sickness and disease he gives the woman her glory which is symbolized by her long hair which she then excuse me which she then uses to wipe her lord's feet with her tears she is the first personally to see him after his resurrection and the first to embrace him the king redeems his bride by sacrificing his life for her and ransoms her at a great price, the price of his own precious blood. So Jesus treats every woman he encounters with honor, gentleness, protection, dignity, and all purity. His actions stood in stark contrast to the times, which viewed women as second class, and the exploitation and abuse of women is normative. Even Jesus' disciples were shocked and often astonished to see Jesus stooping so low as to even speak with a foreign woman. So these are representative encounters of Jesus with his beloved bride, and that demonstrate the tender, loving, protected and concern actions of a holy husband. So as we have seen, a woman's God-given qualities make her simultaneously valuable, but also vulnerable. Jesus recognizes her vulnerability, honors her, while at the same time provides her a context for accentuating and adorning her feminine qualities. Consider that Jesus had a group of women around him often to meet his material needs, care for him and the apostles and to support them in their mission. In Christ, women find healing and they find hope for, for their future. The cross of Christ is antithetical to human reason. Doesn't make sense. For women, the picture is this. Christ takes what society has cast away or deemed second class and through his spirit, he breathes life into her. He restores women to their original creative purpose and renews them by giving them his own life. This glorifies God, and it provides her with an everlasting source of enjoyment and fulfillment. Jesus affirmed the purpose of womanhood by expanding that purpose into his kingdom. The promise made in Genesis 3.15 is filled with incredible promise for women. God's plan for women would ensure not only that there would continue to be physical offspring made possible by the preservation of women, but that she would continue to bear spiritual offspring by nourishing her children into obedience to the word of God. Jesus affirms that a woman's purpose is not merely for temporal utility but instead is joined to God's covenant purposes of redemption. This eternal hope for women is beautifully articulated in the account of a young woman who had her eyes fixed upon her glorious groom. It says this, quote, In 1859, the great Presbyterian preacher James Henley Thornwell had the opportunity to announce the wedding of his daughter, Nancy. In the weeks leading up to this event, the hundreds traveling would end up instead at a funeral, not a wedding. As she took ill from typhoid and began a rapid demise, Thornwell, overcome, came to his daughter's bedside in her waning moments and said, Oh, my dear daughter, such tragedy. Well, she replied, Father, do not weep. I know my Savior. Well, He said, but this was to be your wedding, your whole life, now before you. And she, the youth, yet with greater maturity, said, Father, but now I go to a greater groom that I am prepared to meet. Nancy Witherspoon Thornwell was laid to rest in a wedding gown. And the tombstone reads, as a bride prepared for her groom. So under the new covenant, which Christ inaugurated, a change took place for women. Go and make disciples of every nation. We heard that this morning. What is that? It is a call to fill the earth with spiritual offspring. The Apostle Paul along these lines says to the Galatians, My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So the entire bridal community has been given the task of raising spiritual offspring in all four corners in order to repopulate the earth for God. In redemption, she receives a new heart through the indwelling spirit that enables her to reciprocate the agape love she's been given from her Lord and Savior. She reciprocates it to her children. That goes far beyond natural familial love. We also see that God-fearing womanhood is typological of how God's blessings flow to the church. How so? Through redemption in Christ, there are at least eight parallels that we can find in a woman's creational identity with the bride of Christ. First, Eve was made in the image of God through the body of Adam. Adam. He took on a death-like sleep for his bride to be formed, and from his life she is created and is united in him. Second, the church, like a germinating seed, arises through the death of Christ's body and is organically connected to him, her head. Third, Eve was made in the image of the man of dust, and the church is remade in the image of the man in heaven. Fourth, Eve received her name from Adam, and the church receives her name from Christ, the last Adam. Fifth, Eve receives her life-giving purpose as she is both filled and fills, bearing fruit and bringing glory into the world through her body. The church is the fullness of Christ, his body, bearing spiritual fruit for him in redeemed image bearers and bringing glory to God through the spirit which indwells her. Sixth, in union with and submission to her Bridegroom, Eve is given a mission mandate at his side to be fruitful and to multiply. The Church has given the mandate, the Great Commission, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth by making disciples of all nations. The Bride of Christ produces spiritual offspring born into the world through the agency of the churches. We talked about that this morning. Seventh, the imagery continues in the order of creation. Adam existed first and then Eve. Christ, eternally begotten of God, comes to earth first. Then the church is created from him and for him. Though the church is inferior to Christ in every way, Christ does not treat her as inferior, lording it over her. In her submission to him, she finds his yoke easy and his burden light. Eighth, Eve was made in the filling stage of creation on the second to last day before the Sabbath. In like manner, the church is made in the filling stage of the Spirit on the second to last stage of redemptive history before the Sabbath rest of the new heavens and the new earth. So there are two reasons why Eve is created second. First, Adam needed someone to compliment him and to help him on his mission. Second, Eve, as a type of the coming church, demonstrates her love, respect, and honor to her head. Redeemed women therefore reflect the spiritual redemptive purpose of the church, to love, to respect, and honor her husband, which her temporal purpose prefigures. This union is part and parcel to how God has determined to give a physical picture of the spiritual reality, namely that God through his gospel is uniting himself in human, excuse me, in himself, in himself, to himself, and what? For himself, through redemption. The fullness and manifold wisdom of God through a sexed humanity is then demonstrated through Christ and his bride. Only the infinite wisdom of God could assign such a glorious identity to his creation. It's good to be a woman. That's good. So we need to respect these connections as being typological. That is, they're in shadow form. They're not exact parallels. We must understand that Christ does not need a bride like Adam needed Eve, as if God somehow were lacking in something. Instead, God freely chose her to glorify himself by having her at his side on mission. The taking of a bride for his son is how God will fill the earth through redeemed human glory pointers that give a living illustration in the spreading of God's holy character. Think of it this way, these specks of dust turned into radiant stars demonstrate the unfathomable wisdom and power of God and that he takes the most common an invaluable part of the creation, dust particles from the earth, and transforms them into his elect bride, taking her literally from dust to glory. The prophet Daniel encapsulates the vision. He says, quote, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel twelve two through 3. So, as we are seeing, this reality is accentuated by the high calling of women. As this grand redemptive purpose is only made possible through the woman and her seed, So what confidence that we can have in God's plan. For in the recognition of the order of creation, that same order is seen in redemption. How glorious. Meditating on these realities provides much-needed motivation for the church to live out her responsibility of filling the earth with the knowledge of God, including the knowledge of God's wonderful binary plan for the sexes. This wisdom of God will confound the three counterfeit thieves that look to rob, kill, and destroy the female identity. So, in summary, the identity of the woman was thought of and created by God himself. Her identity is not a social construct, or an idea from an impotent false god who made a mistake. A woman's identity is fixed, and it is tied to God's redemptive purpose for all of humanity. And just a note here. If you're a woman that struggles with your identity, or certain aspects of how God has made you, take heart that your heavenly husband knows you better than you know yourself. He takes what is broken, battered, worn out, and he makes whole. You are called to be an overcomer, but you do not bear that calling alone. Christ has supplied you with his grace and power to his high calling for your life. So whether you are single, or you are married, widowed, a grandmother or a great-grandmother. As his bride, he does not call you to anything that he has not fitted you for. You can embrace your female identity, including your body, regardless of what stage you're in or in what you have been exposed to. The God-fearing beauty forged within will be perfected and united with a matching physical beauty and glory thus completing the whole woman. You're a woman, not just in this world, but for all of eternity. Embrace your womanhood. Man is preoccupied with externals, but God sees the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Believing, mature women need to know that Jesus is not embarrassed that his bride is wrinkled or bearing the marks of a yet unredeemed world. Instead, he has promised to present his bride unwrinkled before God. Jesus sees the heart, which he has miraculously formed, and graciously given in the new birth. And so our great God is not a respecter of the external qualities that fallen men praise. Therefore, if God so values the feminine identity so much as to call his church his bride and entrusts her to his task, how much more should the church herself be a witness to the world about how female image bearers are treated, valued, and honored by God to radiate his very own image in this world. And with that, I'm going to let you out early. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We love how you save We love how you've created us and that you've made us all distinct and different and unique. And you've made men and women that together, when brought together, reflect your grand and vast image. You're an amazing God. You not only forgive us of our sins which are piled high to the heavens. But you redeem us, you give us a new identity, a restored identity even grander than the identity before the fall because we are united in your Son. Help us to live in that reality. Help us to think as we ought to, not to be influenced by the culture or by the world that wants to corrupt, that wants to claim a false identity and wants us to be dislodged from the truths that they're in your world your word has contained and the nature that you have graciously bestowed has given. Help us to recognize these things, help us to be gracious with one another as we explore this and, and seek to live this out in our lives. And we look to you. Help us to trust you and you alone. And thank you for your vast mercies. We give you all the praise and glory. And In Christ's name we pray. Amen.